We are live in the Bergino Baseball Clubhouse at 67 East 11th Street in the landmark cast iron building, Greenwich Village, City of New York. Even though it's the New York Giants Preservation Society, we will still start tonight the way that we always do. To those of you who are here for the first time, welcome. To those who have been here before, welcome home. Without further ado, whatever that really means, uh, it is now my pleasure to introduce our, the very special guest for the evening, the book, 1954, the author, Bill Madden. Well, I guess, for one thing, um, I, I don't have to worry about the audience here as far as <laughs> this book is concerned. Um, it's... Uh, all of you guys, it's fairly self-explanatory, but um, what is not self-explanatory is why I did this book. Um, for one thing, there had never been a book written about the 1954 season, but more importantly, uh, there were so many things that happened in this season that had always kind of fascinated me that nobody had written a book about this season, because it was a lot more than just Willie Mays, uh, although he is the cornerstone person in this book. Um, the subtitle of the book is The Year That Willie Mays and the First Generation of Black Superstars Changed Baseball Forever. And um, there's a lot of that in, throughout the book. Um, everybody thinks that 1947 was the year that baseball, integrated baseball, and it was the breakthrough year for integration in baseball. But I would maintain that, in fact, 1954 was the year that integration really took hold in baseball. And the reason I say that is because seven years after Jackie broke the color line, half of baseball still had not integrated, eight out of the 16 teams. In addition to that, um, when Jackie did break the color line, everybody assumed that there was going to be this deluge of the best players out of the Negro Leagues coming into the Major Leagues, following them into the Major Leagues. In fact, it was more like a trickle. Seven years later, there were only 7% players of color in the, in the Major Leagues. And those that were there, the black players really had not made that much of an impact on the game. You had Jackie, who, who won an MVP award in 49, and Campanella, who won two, two MVP awards for the Dodgers. But other than that, uh, Larry Doby had some really standout seasons for the Indians, but um, the American League was way behind the National League as far as integrating, and um, there hadn't been a whole lot of impact made by the black players, the few black players that have come into the game since 47. So in 1954, you had a situation where the Yankees had won five straight world championships, and since 47, the American League had won seven world championships in a row. Every one. National League had not won anything. Um, and now, you had a season in which Willie Mays and comes back from the Army, two years from the Army, and he galvanizes this Giants team. Uh, and what made this season 
even more significant in that regard was the fact that you had in May of 1954 was the Brown versus Board of Education decision. And the country was in civil strife after that decision. There were riots in the South, there were protests in the North. People all over the country, you know, uh, vehemently fighting, busing of their kids to schools, immigration schools, colleges in the South. Most of the major colleges in the South were still uh, still not integrated until this ruling came down. And so under this backdrop, you had this giant's team. And in retrospect, it really was a very special giant's team that nobody ever wrote about. This, this uh, part of this whole season and this team. And by, I say that because this Giants team belied what was going on in the rest of the country because you had a nucleus of this team, which was Willie Mays, Hank Thompson, and Monty Irvin, three black guys, and five southern whites, Alvin Dark, Don Mueller, Davey Williams, Dusty Rhodes, and uh, Whitey Lockman. And to throw in the mix, you had the first Puerto Rican pitcher to ever start a World Series game in Ruben Gomez. So this was really a unique blending of races on this Giants team. And um, when you think about what was going on in the rest of the country, and these guys had this special bond that um, really wasn't written about that's certainly not that season, and, and obviously in the years after. Everybody just kind of took it for granted that Willie Mays came back from the Army and had this great season and led the Giants to the World Championship, but nobody ever got into the, this bonding of this team and what this team was all about. And it took my friend Terry Cashman, the songwriter, people all know him. He's a lifelong Giants fan. He grew up in Washington Heights. Uh, I guess that's about a long fungo hit from the polo grounds, but he, he, could, he used to take the uh, bus or whatever to the games. And um, a lifelong Giants fan, and he wrote a bunch of songs about the Giants. And in 2004, the Giants had the 50th anniversary of the 54 team, and they ha- held it out in what was then, I think it was at Bell Park at the time. And they invited Terry to come to this thing. Well, and they asked him, would you, would you come and would you perform? And as he told me, he says, I would have done this for nothing. Are you kidding me? I get to spend a weekend with Willie Mays and <laughs> the giants of my youth, my heroes. And he wrote a song called The Catch, which is in the lyrics of the, part of the lyrics are in the book. It's a great song. You try to find it somewhere on the internet or whatever, Terry's Greatest Hits or whatever, because it's a great song. He wrote it especially for Willie Mays and Catch Off the Words. So anyway, Terry is the one that was probably most instrumental in me writing this book. He says, you've got to write about this team. You've got to write about how special this team was. I said, well, what made them so special? I mean, he's going on about this whole race act, about the fact that, you know, Alvin Dark 
had um, had the unfortunate experience of being quoted by a New York sports writer years ago as saying derogatory things about blacks and Hispanics as far as their ability to understand the game or play the game the way the right way or whatever. Who knows if he ever said it, but the fact that he was from Louisiana and grew up his whole life in the South, he was forever branded uh, or suspected of being a big. Nothing could have been further from the truth, and it comes all out in this book. Monty Irvin just talks about Alvin Dark. He said Monty was on the Veterans Committee for the Hall of Fame for years, and he said Alvin Dark belongs in the Hall of Fame as much as Peter Reese or Phil Rizzuto does. He just loved them and everything else. So anyway, Terry goes out to this reunion, and he gets invited to a private reception before they were going out, before the ceremonies on the field. And he said, I he just stood off to the side and just watched these guys in a minute. They were all still alive at the time. Um, well, just about all of them were, were there from the key players on the team. I was and there that... That. I think Ruben, Ruben Gomez had died like yeah. a few days earlier. Right. But he played live. He, he was great. Yeah. They had him all on the infield sitting down in the chairs. Right. The, the team. So, anyway, he's at this private reception and he was just watching the way these guys were intermingling 50 years later. And he said, at one point, Alvin Dark gets up and he says a few words about the great championship team they were. He was the captain, of course. And he said that obviously we could have never done this without Willie. <clears throat> Willie was the greatest player I've ever been around. I managed him. I played with him. He was the greatest player, period. Nobody was ever better than Willie Mays. And Alvin sits down. Now Mays gets up. Mays looks around the room and he says, I just want to say one thing here right now. And he never intimated anything about what people had said about Dockering. It was left unsaid, but he gets up and he made a point of saying this. He said, I just want to say one thing here right now. Nobody, there is nobody in the world, not Leo DeRocher, not my father, not Piper Davis, my manager in the Negro Leagues, nobody taught me more about baseball than Alvin Dark. Alvin Dark is now weeping. He's sitting there. He's totally blown away by this. He gets up, and the two of them, t Terry's describing this whole scene, it's part of the last chapter in the book. And he said, Terry says to me, I have never been anywhere in one room where I found, saw, and felt more love in one room than that was at that moment, that day. So anyway, that's the subplot of this whole book. And then, of course, over in the American world, you had Larry Doby having the year of his life, um, led the American League in home runs and RBIs, made a great catch on Memorial Day in Cleveland that has been lost in time because of another catch that happened three months later <coughs> in the Polo Grounds. Uh, and Larry talked about that catch, and uh, it's, it's in this book. The problem with Larry's catch was it was he made it, uh, it was a um, against the Washington Senators, Tom Umphrey put this ball to center field in Municipal Stadium in Cleveland. Doby goes all the way to the wall. He gets to the wall. 
He leaps up over the wall, makes a backhanded catch like this over the top of the set, and crashes down on top of the javelin that was on top of the bullpen, and tumbles back up down on the field. Unfortunately, there was no television that day. There was no uh, there was no photographers. There's no actual picture of the catch, and so. If it wasn't for the fact that there were 30,000 people there, and one of whom was happened to be Dizzy Dean, who was there to do the next day's Game of the Week for NBC, uh, radio Game of the Week for NBC, and Dizzy Dean is quoted as saying, the greatest catch period that I've ever seen. I've seen Joe DiMaggio, I've seen Terry Moore, I've seen the greatest center fielders ever. Nobody I've ever seen made a catch like that. And so Larry has this great year, and the Indians, of course, dethrone the five-time world champion Yankees and by winning a record 111 games. And they go into the World Series against the Giants, and we all know that story, but they were the most... It, was, it, it remains today the greatest upset in World Series history. It just vaunted Cleveland Indians team that won a record 111 games. They had Six starting pitchers in double figures for wins, and five Hall of Famers on that team. Uh, pitchers, four Hall of Famers: Lemon, Wynn, Newhouser, and Feller. And Al Rosen, you could consider as a borderline Hall of Famer. Of course, Dobie was in the Hall of Famer. So it was a great team that just got totally <laughs> blown away by the Giants. And so, all of these events went on that season, and of course, another undercurrent was the Yankees and their steadfast resistance to integrating. The book begins with uh, George Weiss, the Yankee general manager, having this press conference announcing this big trade that they made in January in which they traded Vic Power, the top prospect who hit 3.30 for Kansas City, the American Association, the year before, uh, to the to the A's, the then Philadelphia A's. Uh, they needed a pitcher. They got Harry Bird, who was a rookie of the year in 52, and they needed a first baseman to replace Johnny Mize, and they got Eddie Robinson in this trade. And Weiss was touting this as one of the best trades they could have ever made. And, you know, they've solved all their problems with one trade. And then sooner or later, the questions got around to, you know, the trading of their power, the top prospect. Are you guys ever going to, is this another indication that you guys are no close to integrating? This questions kept going on, and Weiss finally got a little testy with the writers, and he essentially said to them, look, you know what? We've won five straight world championships. We've beaten the Dodgers three times in those, in those World Series with Jackie Robinson and all their players. We'll integrate when we damn well feel like it. And we're not going to have you people tell us when we have to integrate. We'll integrate when we find the right guy. And that was the Yankee arrogance. As Al Rosen said to me, he says, the Yankees were the symbols of white supremacy. Uh, and the final irony of, of the 54 season is when the Yankees did finally lose the pennant after five straight world championships, the first thing they did in uh, December of that year was announcing that they were promoting Elston Howard to the 40-man roster. <coughs> following spring house that made the team. So anyway, that's the book in a nutshell, and that's why I wrote the book. And 
and um, I, 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 it's actually selling very well, and I'm happy for that. And uh, I, I think that um, I feel like this is a book that needed to be written, and I'm glad I'm the guy that wrote it. <laughs> <laughs> So how does the, your experience with the book uh, better, different, and indifferent than your book on Steinbrenner? Well, this is a totally different book. Um, uh, it's not, you know, Steinbrenner was obviously a big book because of who he was and New York and everything like that. And plus, he <laughs> unfortunately passed away right after the book got published. <laughs> so. I'll tell you a quick story about that. I was very good friends with Elaine Kaufman in the Lanes, and she was very tight with George. They were like brothers, brother and sisters. Speak loud, please. I'm sorry. They were very Elaine Kaufman and George were very tight, very close. And I was in Elaine's a couple days after George had passed away, and um, I went up to her and I said, you know, my condolences about your friend, our friend, and she looked at me and she whispered in my ear and she said, Georgie did good by you, Billy. And I said, Elaine, only you could say that. <laughs> <laughs> but anyway, um, so this has been a totally different experience. Because this is a this is a real baseball history book as opposed to a personality book. <laughs> who, uh, who else has some any questions from Where our this is not a question, but you know, the 54 World Series was the first one with uh, blacks on both sides. That was another point that I should have made in my, uh, another reason why this was such a significant season. Yeah, it was the first World Series in which both teams had players of color. And interestingly, that was another thing that wasn't written about. I went back through all the clips, the New York papers and everything else, and nobody the black papers touched on it a little bit, but they never actually came right out and said, this is a historical World Series, even though it was, especially for them. And um, I found that very interesting because it, it, it was as if uh, the integration of baseball seven years earlier was no big deal. Jackie integrated the game and life went on. And if I don't know how many of you familiar with this, but actually when Jackie his first game in 1947 none of the New York papers wrote about that either they all wrote about the game and you know Jackie's you know, breakthrough was like probably mentioned in the 10th or 11th paragraphs of everybody's story nobody made a big deal of that Bill Alsky should be at the board on your colleagues for years, decades ago. Sports writers back then were not dealing with the social questions. No, they didn't. And, okay. and I, I, I'm sympathetic to that. And, and Ricky Robinson made a big deal, which he just wants to show he's equal or at times better. I mean, we're not doing this for, for a social reason. Well, that's, that's true. I mean, it was like, um, and in a lot of ways, that was probably why Willie was so beloved by his teammates and Jackie was not because Jackie was into the social aspects. He was there as a crusader and he made no bones about it. 
He knew that he was a pioneer, and he knew he had to do the things that a pioneer does, and that meant increasingly raising, raising social consciousness. Whereas Willie, Willie just came to play, and that's why his teammates loved him. And when I was interviewing all these different guys, I got the last interviews with a lot of these players in this book. I went and visited Dusty Rhodes. He was hooked up to oxygen out in this place in, uh, uh, just outside of Las Vegas. And, uh, but he was great. Uh, I, um, uh, I spent a lot of time with Larry Dobie before he died. Uh, and uh, all these guys. Uh, and the one, the one guy that obviously I needed to get a lot from was Willie. And I finally pinned him down up at Cooperstown. This is probably about seven or eight years ago. That's how long this book has been in my head. And I pinned him down, and I got him to agree to sit down with me up there. And I started in by asking him about this special bond that he had with all the Southerners on this team. And the first thing he said to me is, I ain't talking about race. I'll talk about anything else. I'll talk about Leo. I'll talk about the catch. I'll talk about beating the Indians. I'll talk about anything you want to talk about. But I ain't talking about race. And that's the way he was his entire life. Um, he didn't want to get involved. And he was... Uh, there's an incident in this book where... Uh, it's been written about before, too. Uh, when... Uh, the Giants in spring training went to Las Vegas uh, for an exhibition game with the Indians here. Uh, and uh, they were all hanging out in one of the casinos in Las Vegas and uh, one of the bouncers came in and he saw Willie standing a little bit too close for him anyway to the craps table. And he went over to uh, Roger Kahn was the one, he was, a, he was a traveling beat writer for the Tribune. Uh, and Bouncer said to said something about Khan. Uh, is that guy your friend? He's got to get out of here. And then it was a scene that Monty Irvin came over to kind of calm Roger Khan down. Willie never knew what happened, but he didn't understand why they had to get him out of that hotel and have him meet the team at the airport. Um, and these kind of things went on all the time. And. As Willie said to me, he said he was. He says I was an innocent, and um, again, another reason why um, I think that Willie was so beloved by his teammates because he never got into socialism issues with that. Um, you mentioned the person that I want to ask you about. What role did Garosha play in fostering? Basically, the players in the Rochelle left him alone. You know, I know he was very influenced towards Willie Mays in the story of the How was he as the manager in that club? He was, uh, he was, he was good. He was great. Uh, Monty, Monty Irvin was my Giants guy for this. I had Monty Irvin and I had Al Rosen for the Indians. Two, both guys are in their 90s now. Both have memories, like they remember everything. And uh, and they're also personal friends of mine, so, and they were great. I love just I'd call each one of them up each week, and we'd talk about you know different whatever I needed to know, and they were great. And Monty was the one that told me about Leo. He said Leo was 
Leo was a real special manager. Now, obviously, he always had a short shelf life wherever he went. But in, 19, in 1954, uh, when it came to race relations, Hiroshi may have been the best of any of those managers in those days because he he basically um, he treated them all like they were all the same color. I guess that's the best way to put it. Uh, he, yes, he outwardly spoiled Willie, but the players didn't mind that. I mean, he told them in spring training before Willie arrived from Fort Eustis, Texas. Uh, Leo held a meeting with him players and he told them, he said, look, we've got a guy, he's coming back from the Army, he's going to be here in a few days, and I'm telling you right now, this guy is going to lead us to the World Championship. Flat out said it. Willie didn't know it, but he was putting all his pressure on him. He said, this guy is a special player. Some of you guys, most of you guys were here in 1951, you know what I'm talking about. But, and so... And Monty used to, Monty said, uh, he said, him and, uh, he and uh, Alvin Dark used to kid each other because, you know, Will, uh, DeRosha would come into the clubhouse and Willie would say, what you got for me today? And Leo would give him a watch or give him, you know, <laughs> all his friends would give him some clothes, or, you know, whatever, ties. And Alvin one time said to, said to Monty, he said, is Willie the only player on this team or what? <laughs> but, you know, they understood. And uh, and so in answer to your question, now, Leo was more than just a great strategist that season. By the way, they set, a, they set a major league record for 10 pinch hit home runs that season. I think seven or, seven or eight of them won games for them. I'm talking about a magic wand. Uh, wasn't Jackie Robinson himself very critical of Willie? Willie, I believe he was the fact that Willie's kind of almost like Uncle Tom kind of thing. Yes, he was. Um, but again, you know, Willie was kind of oblivious to that kind of stuff. But Jackie, yeah, I mean, Jackie was that way. That was the way he was. He was criti critical of Campanella as well, even more critical of Campanella. Um, and, you because know, that was. That was Jackie's way. He felt like all black players needed to really push the issue. And um, uh, there's a lot of this dynamic between Jackie Robinson and Dick Young, my boss, my first first editor and mentor in this book about because Young covered the Dodgers, and he and Jackie <coughs> would go back. They would they would go at it frequently. You know, usually over social issues. And um, there's a great exchange of letters between Young and Jackie in this book years later. Uh, in my opinion, it's just priceless the way, the way Dick was and the way he would... Why um, another one way to see them? Yeah, well, that was Dick, you know. He was a very controversial guy. But, um, but yeah, I mean, that, that was Jackie. I mean, he... You know, he thought that everybody, all the black players, should be like him. They should, they should not just be passive and put up with the indignities that all of these guys had to put up with, especially back in the fifties. You know, Hank Thompson was sort of the forgotten man. You shed some light on him. Hank Thompson was, um, yeah, he was kind of a forgotten man, and um, 
what was really a, another part of this book was Dusty Rhodes told me that he and Hank Thompson was like his best friend. He says, we worked together in a casino. Uh, I forget where it was. Um, he says, Hank was doing the pool and I was working in the bar or something like that. He says, and he says they couldn't have been more diverse people than Dusty Rhodes and Hank Thompson. And yet, uh, of course, he had a sad ending, Hank Thompson. He, was, uh, he went to jail for sticking up a liquor store. And, I think he died. He died. I think he was only about forty-three. Forty-three. Yeah, he died. Yeah. Uh, I thought when Dolph made his comments of most about Latin players, right? Mays had called the meeting to calm Cepeda and some of the players down, and said, "Look, we got to play for him. He's going to make us money." And he won't be back next year. And then I thought Doc had said, if I was a bigot or racist, would I have made Willie Mays captain? And then I also thought that Mays didn't talk to him for many, many years. Last years. I know Sepeda didn't talk to him. Yeah, Sepeda still still does. Uh, that, uh, I, I, I didn't, didn't know. know. As far as I know, Willie and Doc never had a problem. Um, they may have, you know, it may have been a little uneasy at the time, but um, uh, at least for the last 25 years, I, you know, whenever I've talked to either one of them, they were always saying complimentary things about each other. So, and of course, in this book. Yeah, uh, you mentioned about uh, the integration of the, of the lack of integration of the, the smallness of the AL integration. Uh, how, how important was Bill Beck in that uh, in terms of, uh, I mentioned uh, Hank Thompson. I don't know if he was the general manager of the Browns at the time, uh, but it seems to me his history was to, to actively, actively go out and get some black players among minority Well, if it wasn't for Bill Beck, the American League probably would have been totally segregated in 1954. Bill Beck was the one that he signed Dobie and Satchel Page for the Indians in 1948, 47. And um, then when he was with the Browns, he, brought, he signed Hank Thompson, although Thompson no, never made it. That was the width. The width of Hank Thompson and Willow Brown in 47. And neither one made the team anyway. So they played months and uh, it was really awful. But when Beck went over to the Browns, he brought Satchel Page with him over there. And so he was in the forefront of right, integration in the yeah, American League. The, and the rest of the American League owners were kind of, yeah. they followed the Yankees' lead. And they all paid the price for it, as I pointed out at the end of the book. Um, as I said, the American League had won every World Series from 47 up to 54. In the next 23 years, the National League won 13, the American League won 10, and then the All-Star game is where it really came. Just, just to build up follow-up, uh, how was that brought up with regard to the other uh, owners? Oh, they, they hated them. Uh, they, uh, the Yankees led that whole charge. They, they forced them out in St. Louis in 53, and... Um, he didn't get back into the game until '59 uh, when he brought the White Sox. He tried, but um, they blocked him at every turn because they thought he was, you know, they thought he was uh, you know, a maverick. Yeah. 
Yeah, they just they, they you know all the stuff that he pulled them. and and you know and Beck, in their opinion, had the nerve to suggest that they should share gate receipts. <laughs> was was Mays really that innocent and naive about race? Yes, he was. Was he really shielded was. or just innocent? What's that? Was he shielded at all? Uh, I think when he got to the major leagues, the Giants shielded him. Yeah, yeah. I mean they kept him. You know, uh, but whatever. I mean, he grew up in the South. He grew up in Alabama, and. Uh, with, Actually, he was he and Ernie Banks were very similar. Now, Ernie Banks also told me that when he came to the Cubs, and there's a whole chapter on Ernie Banks and Hank Aaron, who broke in in '54, another significant part of the season. Um, and um, Banks told me that he was signed by the Cubs from the Kansas City Monarchs. He was playing. He was the he was the premier player in the Negro Leagues at the time. And he said, I really wasn't that anxious to go to the major leagues. I said, why? He said, he said well, I was an innocent, and I, you know, I had never played with white players my entire life. I grew up in an all-black part of uh, te- uh, Texas, I forget what, uh, Fort Worth, I think it was. Um, and he said, I played in an all-black high school, and then I played in the Negro Leagues. And... Um, I wasn't sure if I really wanted to go to the major leagues, but I knew I had to because uh, if I wasn't going to make any money in this game, I had to play in the majors. And he was a lot like Willie, too, because he, uh, he talk, talked to me about some of the indignities that he had to endure in spring training, that first spring training, but it was like there was, there was no militancy in, in, in the banks, or Willie, and really, in Hank Aaron until the end of Hank's career, when he when he felt like now I can stand up and really really tell it like it is what I've been through all these years. Do you think that after the Robinson experience, Jack Robinson and his uh, sort of attitude and all that, that teams were looking when they were signing when they signed blacks, that they were looking for the uh, I don't think so. I, I think that they were just resistant to signing anybody of color. I, I really do. I think that especially the American owners. Um, the uh, Mays had a tryout with the Red Sox, uh, which went nowhere. Um, uh, and, uh, the Yankees, uh, I have a letter that I got it's in this book from one of the Yankee scouts who is complaining to Paul Critchell the legendary Yankee scouting director he said you asked me to go out and look at the Negro players and I've sent you reports on a list of these guys one of which was Mays an outfielder from Birmingham and I get no response I don't understand it and um that was kind of a tip-off, too, that the Yankees, despite what they were saying, they just were not interested in signing black players. And so, whereas Ricky was looking for the right guy, the rest of these owners weren't looking for any guy. With all the research and interviews you did on this book, was there any 
big aha surprises that you never expected to hear or find? Well, there's a couple of things in there. Um, but one thing is that there was this um, there was this huge, uh, stunning confrontation between Elston Howard and um, Sam Lacey, the most one of the most uh, renowned black sports writers. He's in the Hall of Fame. Uh, and um, Lacey was covering the Yankees spring training in 54, specifically to cover Elston Howard. It was his first spring training. And, and in light of the Vic Power trade, because Lacey was, Lacey was there to basically write the story that the Yankees are going to go out of their way to get rid of Elston Howard, too, just like they got rid of Vic Power. And during the course of that spring, apparently what happened was Lacey got Howard off campus, so to speak, and kind of fed him a lot of leading questions about how the Yankees are treating him because they had, um, he was, went to spring training as an outfielder. He had caught, but they were now doing a, a lot of catching. And Lacey suspected they were doing that because they were loaded with catchers, starting with Yogi Berra, who caught regularly 150 games a year. And so Lacey writes this whole column. Basically, he doesn't quote Howard directly, but he says, this is what they're doing to Elston Howard. They're burying him. They're doing everything they can. They got rid of Vic Power. Now they're going to do the same thing to him. And Howard, I mean, and, and Howard, ordinarily this... The reason this was a surprising story to me because it never got any attention anywhere because it was only in in the black press in the Baltimore uh, American Black American that he wrote for, and it got syndicated, I guess, to some of the black papers. But and he also uh, uh, Lacey in this article he also ripped the New York writers. He said these guys are all toadies for the Yankees and uh, you know they're, they're all housemen. Uh, he singled out Dan Daniel in particular, and um, uh, I think Joe Williams also from the World Telegram. Um, and so I, you can imagine today if somebody wrote this story, it would be front page news. And so it didn't get around until Howard found out about it. And so he confronted Sam Lacey in the dugout, spring training and started screaming at him and it's, I got this out of the black press because it wasn't in any of the New York papers. And uh, I found that very fascinating because in a previous book I wrote about the Yankees uh, it's called Pride of October and I interviewed 18 former Yankees for that book including Arlene Howard. And she alluded to this and I didn't really follow up I didn't really get what she was talking she said Elston had a problem with one of the black writers. She didn't mention who it was, and I just kind of moved on to other things, and then I discovered it in doing the research for this book. I mean, how did the Yankees have control of Victor? Well, they signed him out of um, they signed him out of Puerto Rican. Um, I guess he was playing in Puerto Rico in the, in the winter league down there, and that's where they discovered him. And they, was he intended at least at some time to bring him up? Well, 
you would think, yeah, I mean, he was moving along in the system and uh, he was, uh, if not the most valuable player in the American Association that year, he was close to it. He led the league in hitting and uh, he was clearly a premier player. And uh, But as Vic Power told me, and I interviewed him, it must have been 15 years ago, he was at Yankee Stadium for something. I forget what it was. And he told me that the Yankees called him up at the end of that 53 season. He had this great year. But they didn't put him on the roster. They just brought him to New York and told him he could come to New York. And he said, I never was allowed in the clubhouse. They gave me, they gave me a ticket for the game. And I sat in, the, sat in the whatever the seats were. And he said, it turned out to be Ali Reynolds' second no-hitter. He says, but I wasn't allowed to come down to the clubhouse and celebrate with him. He says, he says, that was it. He says, I never actually put on a Yankee uniform the whole time I was with him because he never got to the spring training with him. He would have been in that 54 spring training. Bill, I've heard stories about, especially when Willie was prominent as a star in baseball, people in the Deep South, sons of Klansmen, playing baseball and pretending to be Willie Mays. And uh, to me, that's an unbelievably powerful dynamic that was happening. It is curious to me that that type of story and the story of a 54 team that's in the race is not more widely known and widely told. Why do you think it's taken this long to tell it? And do you think that the Giants not moved out of New York and really been the superstar of baseball in New York, that his impact on a race would have been more widely I think it might have been, yeah. I mean, once he went to, once he went to San Francisco, San Francisco is like a no man's land. It's, it's a beautiful city, but I mean, as far as as far as things like you know, this is you know, and Willie wasn't Willie was a different guy in San Francisco. He, Orlando Cepeda was the guy that they all loved and said he was ours. He was not theirs, and. Um, and I think that probably had a lot to do with it. It's funny because Dusty Rhodes told me, you know, he grew up also in Alabama. And he said that, he said, I said, you know, I talked to him about this special bond that these white guys, these white Southerners had with Willie and, and the other guy, Monty. And, and Dusty said, I never thought a thing about it. He says, when I grew up, I, I was picking cotton with black kids. I, um... I think we're going to we'll wrap that part up. The book, again, 1954, the author and our special guest, the Hall of Famer, Bill Madden.